You're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast, the official channel for faith and life topics at PursueGod.org. Join us every week as we explore new topics from a biblical perspective. All right, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and we're going to cover all the way to chapter 9, verse 1, because this is all one coherent section of Scripture that should be taken all together. And this is the place in the Bible, finally in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is going to reveal his hidden identity. Now think about it, for almost eight complete chapters now, Jesus has told his disciples, he's told anyone that he's healed, he's even told the demons not to reveal his identity. He's not ready yet. He's not ready for people to know who he really is and why he has really come. But this is the place where he finally gets ready. And what we're going to learn is that Jesus's identity as the Messiah is going to completely blow the minds of his disciples and really of any Jewish person in his day. It's not what they expect. They're they're looking for a different kind of Jesus. They're looking for a different kind of Savior, a different kind of Messiah. We're going to get into all of this today. And really what we're going to see is that revealing the true identity of the Messiah also ends up revealing the true identity or the true calling of the Messiah's disciples. And so before we get into that, before we look at the text, and I want to show you what I mean by all of this. I want to start with this question because I think it's a question that every Christian has had to ask themselves, but really in American Christianity, it's not a question that we consider very often because our lives are so, they're so comfortable. And so here's the question, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Are are you willing to go through pain? Are you willing to go through even potentially persecution and even death? Because for over, well, for 2,000 years, the followers of Jesus have had to truly ask this question. In fact, that's the question that was at the forefront of the minds of the people in Mark's day as he's writing this gospel and releasing it to the church 2,000 years ago, the church was actually undergoing persecution even at the time of the writing of this gospel. Now today, at least not in America, it's not a thing. Real persecution is not a thing. Now I know you've probably experienced a little bit of persecution. Maybe if you're a young person, you've been made fun of for being a Christian or, you know, there's certainly some trials that we go through as Christians in a non-Christian nation, which is where we are now. America is no longer a Christian nation. And so we're going to be experiencing inconveniences. Let's call them inconveniences. But but throughout history, there have been Christians who've, who've experienced real persecution, real trial, even martyrdom. In fact, in 2022, at least 360 million Christians have experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination. It's actually gone up. That's 20 million higher than in 2021. The Open Doors Advocacy Group estimates that the number of Christians killed for their faith in 2022 is 5,898, up from 4,761 from the year before. So persecution is real. Suffering for Jesus is real. It was real 2,000 years ago. It's real today for many millions of Christians all around the globe, even though for most people listening right now, if we're honest, 
we have never and maybe will never experience this kind of suffering in our lifetime, but it's still worth asking the question. In fact, that's what we're going to be getting to as we study the passage for today. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Things could go from bad to worse. Let's keep that in mind. It could get to the point where our generation in the United States of America is going to have to suffer for being a Christian. Like real suffering, real persecution, maybe even, God forbid, martyrdom in our country. It could happen, if not in our lifetime, it could happen in our kids' lifetime. It could happen in our grandkids' lifetime. So it's really helpful for us to have this question in mind as we read the text for today. Because when Jesus is going to explain some things to his disciples here in these passages, in these verses, these weren't just for his followers 2,000 years ago. They're, they're for his followers even today. And we need to ask these questions even today. We really need to challenge ourselves and our conception, not just of the Messiah, but our conception of discipleship. What does it really cost to follow Jesus? So let's keep that question in mind as we get to the text. Mark 8, starting in verse 31, it says, Then Jesus began to tell them, talking about his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. Now, let's talk about the context for what Jesus is saying right here. By the way, this is shocking. I wish you could, I wish we all could have seen the looks on the disciples' faces as Jesus explains this. He, he tells them that the Son of Man must suffer. Now, remember in context, literally, Peter, just the section before, Peter had just finally come to this realization, to this declaration of faith where he said, you are the Messiah. Jesus, we believe that you are the Messiah. This was a huge revelation. The first time in the Gospel of Mark that any human uttered those words, Peter finally utters those words right after Jesus heals a blind man in stages. Remember, all of this, we've got to read all of this in chapter 8 together because all of this ties together. Just like the blind man at first could only see, you know, 50%, and then when Jesus touched him a second time, he could see fully in the same way the disciples are opening their eyes spiritually to who Jesus really is. For the first seven chapters, they, they only see in part who Jesus really is. And now they're seeing with better clarity, with greater clarity, who Jesus really is. And so now Jesus is going to, he's going to pull back the curtain altogether. He's going to be totally clear with them. And he's going to tell them that, look, the Messiah isn't who you think he is. The Messiah must suffer. When it says the son of man must suffer, he's talking about himself. They knew that he was talking about himself, that the son of man must suffer. Now, look, if you're a Christian and you're pretty, if you're well-read, if you've read through scripture, maybe you've heard a bunch of sermons in your life, you probably know the verses in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53 and so many other verses that talk about that Jesus or that the Messiah would suffer. But we have to remember that the Jewish people didn't really apply those verses to their conception of the Messiah. 
So when they thought about the Messiah, they only thought about all the good stuff, all the powerful stuff. So they envisioned a Messiah who would come and who would set them free. He would reestablish Israel kind of like in the glory days of King David. And so this is what they had in mind. They did with the Old Testament what a lot of Christians do with the New Testament. We like to pick and choose and we sort of formulate our picture of life or our picture of God or our picture of Jesus. We formulate it, we sort of shape it into what we want scripture to say. And that's what hundreds of years of Jewish thought, Jewish tradition, Jewish study, that's what all of these centuries of study brought the Jewish people to come to understand is that the Messiah was going to be a conquering king. And so last week when when Peter said, I believe that you're the Messiah, we've got to be careful not to think that Peter fully understood what he was saying. He didn't. He didn't, under, as we're about to see, he didn't understand what he was saying. He's making this great declaration the first time a human does it, and yet he's still, he's still pretty uninformed about it. And so Jesus uses this as an opportunity to clear things up. He's finally going to tell his closest friends and followers what his mission's all about. And so he says, the son of man must suffer. Now that was surprising enough, but then he goes on to say the second thing. He says, the son of man must be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. Now he's talking about the Jewish Sanhedrin here, the the council that if you fast forward in the gospel of Mark or any of the gospels, they're the ones who are going to put him on trial and they're going to convict him and send him to the cross. And I love what the pillar commentary says about this. It says, the prediction of Jesus's passion conceals a great irony for the suffering and death of the son of man will not come as we would expect at the hands of godless and wicked people, like, for example, the Romans or something. It goes on to say, it is not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God, but humanity at its absolute best, right? That's to the disciples. That is what the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, at least before they met Jesus, that they thought of those people as humanity at its best, But the commentary goes on to say that the death of Jesus will not be the result of a momentary lapse or aberration of human nature, but rather the result of careful deliberations from respected religious leaders who will justify their actions by the highest standards of law and morality, even believing them to render service to God. You can read that in John chapter 16, verse 2. So when Jesus says that he's going to be rejected by the elders, leading priests, and teachers of religious law, I'm sure the disciples couldn't even process what he's talking about. They're they're not even able to make sense of this. Because, now granted, he's been going toe-to-toe with these guys. They're kind of the bad boys of the New Testament because of their arrogance, their religious arrogance. But the disciples are still trying to make sense of all of this. And, and what Jesus is saying is, instead of coming and, and destroying the Romans, right, which is what their expectation of the Messiah would have been, that instead of that, that Jesus is going to die at the hands of the Romans, that's what crucifixion is. Now, he doesn't say crucifixion just yet, but they're going to learn later that that's really the way he's going to die. But it's not because of the Romans. 
It's actually because of the Jewish leaders. It's actually because of, quote unquote, God's people. Not just the Jewish leaders, but even the Jewish mob that for three years follows Jesus around because of his miracles, but then sort of in in riot mentality, and I guess this is just how riots tend to work, we're going to see at his at his trial that Jesus is going to be condemned not just by the elders, leading priests, and teachers of religious law, but even by the Jewish people themselves. And that had to be pure shock for the disciples, for them to hear Jesus say this. And so it's not surprising, it says in verse 32, that as he talked about this openly with his disciples, that Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Now it goes on and it says that Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and then he reprimanded Peter and he said, get away from me, Satan. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. So isn't it, isn't it interesting? So first of all, he's talking about these things openly for the very first time. He's, he's ready to make this known to his disciples and then pretty quickly it's going to be made known to other people in the gospel of Mark. But it, it, isn't it interesting that just literally just a handful of verses after Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah, even though he doesn't fully get what that means, right? He still is, his eyes are, are like, like half opened to what it really means, as we see in this passage, that Peter ends up taking Jesus aside and he reprimands Jesus for saying such thing. Can you imagine the gall? Could you imagine that, I mean, this is Peter, isn't it? Peter's the guy that steps out on the water. Peter's the guy that's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's, he's, he's acting and then he's thinking, right? That's kind of the, that's the guy that Peter is, but which by the way is encouraging to anyone who's like that because God still uses Peter. Peter ends up being a pillar of the church. So Jesus can use all kinds of people, even this kind of a personality. I love that. But isn't it funny that Peter takes him aside to... Correct him. That's what the word means here. It says he reprimanded him for saying such things. How dare you say such things, Jesus? You don't understand what you're talking about. Man, does that not sound a little bit like American Christianity today, that that we presume to think that we can tell Jesus what's right and wrong, that we can, we can tell him how to think or what to say? That's essentially what Peter is doing in this passage. But Jesus isn't going to have it. Look at what it says there. It says that he turned around and he looked at his disciples and then reprimanded Peter. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. He didn't just reprimand Peter. It's, remember, it said that Peter had taken him aside. So Peter's trying to have like a private conversation. And Jesus decides that he doesn't want this conversation to be private because he wants, to, he wants the other disciples to hear what he's about to tell Peter. So the first thing he does, so he turns around, he looks at the other disciples. I can, I can just see this in my mind's eye how he does this. And then he reprimands Peter because he wants them to hear this. And here's what he says to Peter. And these, these words are so hurtful, but I wanna, I wanna help you to understand the context. He says, get away from me, Satan. Now look, these words are literally the words that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus goes into the wilderness before he starts his public ministry and he's tempted by Satan three different times. Jesus says at the end of that, get away from me, Satan. Get out of here, Satan, Matthew 4 and verse 10. 
And the Bible Knowledge Commentary says it like this, that Peter's reaction, which the other disciples probably shared, was a satanic attempt similar to the wilderness temptation to divert Jesus from the cross. So see what Satan was trying to do in the wilderness, and go back and read that again, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Essentially, Satan was trying to, he was trying to divert Jesus from the cross. He was trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross because he knew how central the cross was to the redemption plan of God from the foundation of the earth. And so Jesus rebukes it. He doesn't fall for the temptation. He rebukes Satan in the wilderness. Get away from me, Satan. And now he's doing it here again in Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, Peter is the one who's trying to divert Jesus from the cross. And Jesus isn't going to fall for that, that temptation. And so Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. Now, he's not calling Peter Satan. He's not saying that Peter is satanic. But he's essentially saying that that anything that goes against God's divinely inspired plan is adversarial, which is what the word Satan means. It means adversary, is adversarial to the purposes of God. So even today, we as Christians, we have to be careful about the words that we speak, because when we speak against God's word, when we speak against God's authority, when we speak against his plan, essentially, we're, we're more a tool in the hand of Satan than we are in the hand of God. Now, Jesus says to Peter that you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. And this is exactly what Peter was doing. It was really what all of the disciples were doing as well, which is why Jesus wanted to rebuke Peter in front of them, because they were, they were no different. They all had the same human perspective on who Jesus was supposed to be. They had the wrong idea about who Jesus really was. Remember, go back to the healing in stages of the blind man from earlier in the chapter. The blind man is seeing in stages. He sees a little bit, and then finally he sees fully. And really, the disciples are in that same boat, all of them, not just Peter. They see a little bit who Jesus is, but, but really their starting point was a human perspective on Jesus, which is really all of our starting point. Every single one of us starts by seeing Jesus in human terms, but as we march towards salvation, we end up seeing Jesus in true terms, in godly terms, from God's perspective. And God's perspective, now, and we can go back and see this in the Old Testament, God's perspective all along was that the Lamb of God, Jesus, would be slain for the sins of the world, that this is the way that it would have to happen before God even created Adam and Eve, he knew that it would cost him his son to create Adam and Eve and that they would sin and make these choices. And there, there goes the march throughout the whole Old Testament, throughout all of human history. It's this march toward this, this watershed moment in history, which is when Jesus is on the cross and he dies on the cross for the sins of the whole world, this is what Jesus is saying, that the Son of Man must suffer. It's part of God's plan all along. And if you don't see it that way, then you're seeing it only from a human perspective. Okay, so that's who the Messiah is. Jesus is finally speaking openly, speaking plainly about who the Messiah is. And now he goes on, and in, in starting in verse 34, he goes on to talk about what this means for the Messiah's followers. In other words, Jesus isn't going to pull back the curtain on what it means to be the Messiah, 
But he's also going to pull back the curtain on what it means to be a follower of the Messiah. So just as there was a cost to being the Messiah for Jesus that he must suffer, there's also a cost to following him. And here's what he said, verse 34 to 38. It says, Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, I've underlined some of these, some of these phrases in this passage, and the first one is where it says that he called the crowd to join his disciples. So, take a look at what's happening here. First, he's having this interaction with his 12 disciples. Peter pulls him apart, and, and Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and reveals who he really is to all 12 of the disciples. But now in verse 34, he does something more. He actually calls the crowd to join his disciples. So it's almost like he's inviting in, well, it's more than almost, he's exactly doing this. He's inviting in more people to follow him than we would expect. He's inviting, he wants more people to hear this next bit. He wants everyone, every one of his followers to hear the next part of what he's going to say to his disciples. And, and that's true for us too. So imagine that you're part of the crowd and Jesus is now looking at you and he's calling you in. He says, hey, gather around. I want you to hear this part. I want you to hear what I'm, I'm about to say. And here's what he says. If you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross. Now, these days, there are so many people who show up at church or open the Bible and they say, I want, I want Jesus my way kind of like uh, the old Burger King commercials, you know, have it your way. That's how we think we can have Jesus. I want Jesus my way. But actually it says here, Jesus said, it's his own words. He says, you must give up your own way. You need to come to Jesus on his terms, not on your terms. You can't come to Jesus with demands. He comes to us with demands. We see them right here in this passage. This is a clear rebuke of what some people today call easy believism. Easy believism is, is the sort of pseudo-Christianity, the fake Christianity that says, hey, we can come to Jesus, but we don't have to repent. We can come to Jesus, but we don't have to let him tell us what is and what isn't sin. The truth is, that if anyone would come to Jesus, they have to have what we call an attitude of repentance. The Bible talks about this, this heart attitude that says, what do I need to do? I want to be your follower. What do I need to do? That means that we come to Jesus on his terms, not on our own terms. That means that we're willing to give up our own way and there's no other way to follow Jesus. You can't follow Jesus without giving up your own way. So maybe it's worth even just thinking about some of the things in your own life that you struggle with, some of the things in scripture maybe that you struggle with, some of the plain teachings of Jesus. Let's say some of the things that he says is sin in, in the word. 
go to Galatians chapter 5 and you can see that list. Maybe you look at that list and you say, ah, okay, I'll, I'll believe you on some of these things, Jesus, but on, on some of these other things, I'm going to believe my culture instead because my culture doesn't view this as a sin anymore. Well, Jesus would say to that, you must give up your own way. If you want to be my follower, then this is only going to work one way. I'm the Lord and you're the follower. I'm the master and you're the servant. I'm the leader and you're not the leader. You don't get to decide what is true and what's not true. This is a fundamental truth of biblical Christianity. Now, there's a lot of other types of Christianity out there today that people are wrapped up in, but it's not true Christianity. In fact, Jesus himself said that many will say to me in that day, speaking of the day of judgment, after we all die, many will say to me, "What, Lord, didn't we know you? Didn't I do these things in your name? Weren't we really Christians, basically? And Jesus is going to say to them, get away from me. I never knew you. So this is a real challenge for everyone listening today. Have you given up your own way? You know, maybe there are some of you young people listening and you're, you're sleeping with your girlfriend, let's say. That's just one example. Everybody does it in our culture today. And you say, it's okay. I'm doing it. I'm doing it, but everyone else is doing it. And Jesus is good with it because he loves me and he died on the cross for me. Well, I think the verse you should look at is this one right here. If anyone wants to be my follower, he must give up his own way. If you're living in unrepentant sin, then Jesus is calling you to give up your own way, to repent, which means to turn around 180 and say, I was wrong. I'm going to go your way now. I'm going to do it your way now. In fact, Jesus said it this way also. He says, you have to give up your life. Now, the word for life in Greek there in the original language is the word psyche, literally. It's like the word that we use in our common language today. And, and psyche really referred to your true self. So giving up your life meant that your whole person, your whole psyche stands under Christ's claim that he gets to decide who you are. He gets to decide what is right and wrong, what is black and white. He gets to decide, you and I, we don't get to decide that anymore. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's the Christianity that Jesus was calling his disciples to, not just the 12, but the whole crowd. And that's still the Christianity that Jesus calls all of us to today, 2,000 years later. It means that we need to be willing to give up even what we believe to be our true self. We need to be willing to lay all of that at the altar and say, it's all yours. You get to tell me how to be from here on out. And in case there's any confusion, Jesus uses the perfect metaphor. He says, that you have to take up your cross. Now, again, for many of us, we're reading this and we're thinking about it in the context of the cross of Jesus. And of course, that makes some sense because Jesus, that's what he means when he says he's going to suffer and die, but he hasn't actually told the disciples that yet. Go back and read this passage in Mark chapter eight, and you'll notice he just says that he's going to have to suffer and die, but he doesn't say how. So we know how he's going to die, but the disciples don't know how he's going to die. So when he says, you must take up your cross, he's just, they're just thinking about it in terms of what the cross symbolized and meant in their culture in that day. 
The Pillar New Testament commentary says it like this, the cross symbolized hated Roman oppression and was reserved for the lowest social classes. It was the most visible and omnipresent aspect of Rome's terror apparatus designed especially to punish criminals and quash slave rebellions. In fact, in 71 BC, the Roman general Crassus defeated the slave rebel Spartacus and crucified 6,000 of his followers on the Appian Way between Rome and Capua. A century later in Mark's day, Nero would crucify and burn Christians who were falsely accused of setting fire to Rome. So when we hear the word cross, we think about that piece of jewelry that we have, you know, hanging across our necks. But when the early disciples thought of the cross, they thought of 6,000 followers of Spartacus brutally tortured and killed and on display on the Appian Way. And later on, later generations would think about Christians who are being persecuted by Nero. Nero crucifies Christians. He burns Christians. And this is one of the reasons that Mark wants to make sure to include this part, because he's encouraging not just the disciples and the story that we're, we're learning here in chapter 8, but he's actually encouraging the readers in Mark's day and that was a day when some of those readers would actually literally be crucified because they followed Jesus. So taking up your cross doesn't mean to wear a cross on your person when you go to work so that you can tell other people that you're a Christian. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what taking up your cross means. Taking up your cross doesn't mean to endure some inconvenience because you're a follower of Jesus in a culture that no longer cares about the Bible or what Jesus has to say. Taking up your cross means being willing to suffer and even to die for Jesus. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus did. He literally took up his cross. He went to the cross and he died. So consider the connection. He's telling his disciples who the Messiah is. He's blowing their minds, their expectations that they had, that the Messiah would be, would be this guy that leads them into joy and festivity and dominance over the Roman oppressors. And he's saying, no, actually, the Messiah is going to have to die. And, and then he says right after that, oh, and you also must suffer. And some of them would even die for their faith. This is the cost of discipleship. And the reason it's a cost is because of the culture that we live in. Jesus said at the end there, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the son of man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So this, these adulterous and sinful days, that's how Jesus classifies the days that he was in and the, the era that the Christians in Jesus's day were entering into as Christianity would be forged in the midst of chaos and persecution and great martyrdom. Now, for today's Christians, we too live in adulterous and sinful days, but it hasn't yet come to great suffering or martyrdom, at least not in America. For us, though, these adulterous and sinful days might very well be leading to that kind of an outcome. And that's why the question that we asked at the beginning, 
again, is so important. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? And don't answer that question too quickly. You know, I think it's easy to say, oh, of course I'd suffer for Jesus. I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. Man, I don't know. I think one of the litmus tests for that is, are you willing to live for Jesus? Like, one of the best ways to know if you're willing to die for Jesus in the hard times is if you're willing to live for Jesus in the easy times. So, take stock of your own life. Are you living for Jesus now? Are you, are you dying to yourself daily? Are you denying yourself? Are you, are you following Jesus' way? Or are you, are you getting sort of wrapped up? Are you getting sort of swept up in the tide of our culture? These are questions that every generation needs to grapple with. And if you've never wrestled yet with these questions, maybe as you study this portion of scripture, it's time to wrestle with that. And I want to close with just one more verse because we're adding chapter 9, verse 1 to this section because I think it's related. And here's why. It says in verse 1, Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Now, Christians and commentators have been confused by this verse for a long time. This verse at just kind of at the very at the most basic reading of it can be a little bit disconcerting because it sounds when you first read it it sounds like Jesus is saying that he's going to come back in the lifetime of his disciples. Right? He says some standing here right now will not die before they see see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. So if you're interpreting this passage as the second coming of Jesus, then you're tempted to say, okay, well, then Jesus was wrong. Someone was wrong because Jesus hasn't come back yet. So what could this possibly mean? Scripture must be wrong. We better throw scripture out. It's not reliable. Well, that would be a mistake. I think that Jesus isn't talking here about his second coming. I think he's talking about his death and resurrection because the death and resurrection usher in the kingdom of God. When Jesus dies and raises from the dead, this new era begins, the era that that we call the kingdom. You know, Jesus' whole message, John the Baptist's message was to prepare people for the kingdom of God. They were preaching the kingdom of God. The disciples, after Jesus' death and resurrection, are preaching the kingdom of God. And it is in the kingdom of God that we give up our own way. It's in the kingdom of God that we take up our cross to follow Jesus. It's, a, it's in the kingdom of God where we no longer try to hang on to our life, because if we do, we'll lose it. It's in the kingdom of God that we give up our life, our psyche, for Christ's sake and for the sake of the good news, and then we'll save it. The kingdom of God was inaugurated at the death and resurrection of Jesus, and participation in it has brought suffering and persecution for generations of Christians, starting with the generation that Jesus is speaking to right here in Mark chapter 8. And even today, it's worth the cost.